this lovely bright Sunday morning, the only day of sunshine in this year's British summer. It's episode 213 of the Effect Podcast, The Devil of Slaughterville. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew, and that was a brilliant introduction. And it's not strictly true. There have been I had I had one vaguely sunny day on my holiday in Cornwall last <laughs> week. So so and and I believe today is going to turn rainy later on in the afternoon as well. Inevitably so, uh, for this year. That is welcome sure. to Great Britain. Um, <laughs> yes. Britain and Ireland is uh, key to this episode, actually, in all sorts of ways, but we'll come on to that news later on. Um, did you see what I did there? It was it, well. It would have been a good segue if we did have a lot to talk about Britain and Ireland this year. We've got a bit of important stuff to talk about, <laughs> but not very much. It's, it's yeah, not it's really quite essential yeah, to really, the episode. No, 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 no. It isn't essential. But Gen Con is happening, so we've got some news coming out of Gen Con. We've got. Uh, the any results, uh, we've got the Diana Jones Award. That has, should really go before the any results because that was announced earlier on. And we've got some announcements that are quite exciting. We've got, um, yeah, uh, some stuff to talk about in the world of gaming. Then we've got two, two, count them, two features. <laughs> um, we've got the article I promised you in the last episode that I said I would uh, think about while I was in Cornwall. But that's quite short, so we've also got an interview with the creator of a new Year Zero RPG that is currently kickstarting. Not from Free League. It's one that's under the new uh, Faster Than Light license. And uh, no, mm -hmm. that's not what they call it. Um, the FTL from Free League and it's uh, uh, licensing the Year Zero engine. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Cool. Now... Um, I'm going to say, Dave, that we haven't got any patrons, and that's because I know we didn't have any when I last looked. I haven't actually looked this morning. Uh, well, we've got patrons, of course, but we haven't got any new ones, so um, <laughs> we won't be saying thank you to them. Get your new patrons here. Come on, get your new patrons here. Round up, round Fresh up. Fresh patrons! <laughs> yeah. Buy one, get one free. Yes. Um, uh, yes. No, that, that, that's that's fine. Um, again, always huge thank you to everyone who supports us. Uh, and um, yeah, come along onto the Discord if you are a patron and you're not there. Because it's great. It is the nicest place on the internet, as we keep saying. We do keep saying that. And it's true. It's it true. Is. It really is. I've never found a nicer place on the internet than our Discord. In fact, our interviewee, uh, Chris Brown, asked me about how useful i found um discord i, I mentioned it in some ways um and because i think uh, he, he said he's not brilliant at marketing and getting out there socially and i you know and i said well you know our, our discord isn't as big as a lot of people because it's exclusive to our patrons but it you know it's great and i spend more time there probably than i should <laughs> um, yeah no absolutely uh, Shall we crack on with the world of gaming then? Yeah, go on then. Let's do that. And um, we are recording this while people in America are actually probably sleeping before they wake up to um, to play games at Gen Con. Uh, there are probably some people playing games all nighters and stuff like that. But um, yeah, Gen Con is happening as we type. And therefore, there are awards that we should talk about. There and are. we mentioned the Diana Jones shortlist last time we were on i think 
Yeah. And the winners for that is the game Coyote and Crow, yeah. which I think is probably a well-deserved winner. Um, some people I feel, I think, feel that Linda Kadiga, the uh, journalist who broke the the big D and D licensing story, should have got that. But she does win another award in the Emmys. Mm. No, that's great. I mean, I, I haven't played Coyote and Crow. Um, I haven't, I haven't had my hands on it. But um, it, it's it's a very interesting one for me because obviously it. it it deals with issues that we are looking to grapple with for yes. Tales of the Old West. Um, it's the antithesis of Tales of the Old West, isn't it? it well, it is. It's the, sort of the counterfactual approach, which is great, which I really yeah. like. Um, but still, the issues are there. The, the, the real day, the real world issues are still there and have to be dealt with. Mm. Um, just because you're kind of changing the history and putting putting a different spin on it doesn't doesn't take away from the the requirement to be respectful of of the current world situation and the real history actually they got us got us where mm. we are um but yeah so great i'm delighted that they've they've done well there and um and you know all uh, you know all power to them cool um and uh, i guess we should talk about the ennies as well any any particular outstanding winners there that you noticed <laughs> i I'm milking this, aren't I? Yeah, we are rather, and I'm and I'm trying to think how 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 um kind of triumphalist and you know celebratory I want to be. So obviously, obviously, Verson RPG Mythic Britain and Ireland won the Gold Awards for both the categories that it was uh, nominated for for the best setting and for the product of the year. So whoop. Um, whoop! You know, very well done, Indeed, Graham. Double whoop, Graham Davis, who obviously was the lead writer and did the vast majority of the writing on it. Well done to all the guys at Free League, but also well done to us for contributing to it. And our names yeah. were on on the list, on the nomination list. So everybody out there, look at it and see. You know, pay me more. I'm a freelancer. I'm any winning. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we'll but- do an item on that later in the show. <laughs> But it's uh, yeah, it's superb that um, that that Verson has done so well. Also, Seasons of Mystery, the four scenarios that came out with Mythic Britain and Ireland, also won the Gold um, Any Award for Best Adventure. Yes, um, which is and great. And there's some cracking adventures in there. Actually. Yeah, I think that's a well-deserved win. Um, we're going to be talking about that again later in the show. Mm. But um, but yeah. Uh, what else did we see? We saw Blade Runner get Gold Award for Layout and Design. Yep. Uh, interestingly, Frontier Scum got the Silver Award. And Frontier Scum is kind of what I had originally thought. I, I don't think you like the idea much, uh, that, but it was kind of a bit of the vision that I had for doing Toto if we ever got to publish it. Obviously, now that Frontier Scum have done it, we can't possibly do anything like that because we'd just be copying them. But it was interesting so, to see that... Uh, tell me uh, a bit about what, what Frontiers Scum have done. What, what's the, what, was the, what was their layout and design for that? So um, Frontier Scum is produced a little bit like a number of books in the 19th century West were produced, which is All right, yeah. um, <clears throat> very simply bound, uh, you know, folded, sewn paper, but rather than being properly bound, just two bits of hardboard, front and back, sewn right through 
so that the spine, as it were, is is if you like all the edges of the signatures, as they're called. Yeah, the, you know the units of eight folded bits of paper. Um, so that's lovely, and it's also it hasn't quite got. So I was thinking about doing it in the style of um, the contemporary magazines at the time. This one does it in the style of the mail order catalogues that were such an important part of commerce in the old west um, and which we re we've used for um uh, for refer references for costs and things like that yeah. so there's like it's full of adverts and stuff like that as though mm. and it's laid out a bit like those mail order catalogues were um but yeah overall very much inspired by publishing of a sort in the 19th century late yeah 19th century. okay cool yeah yeah i've just had well, a quick, then, quick look at their drive-through page and yeah it's got a definite style to it hasn't it it's uh yeah yeah cool and actually i think the the, the, the a good thing about the kind of the the competitions these the the judging of these things is that slightly different slightly outlandish you know adventurous or or you know, less contemporary art styles layout styles are getting rewarded which is mm. great because yes. You know, this is all about creativity and, you know, it might well be a Marmite kind of thing, you know, like, so, you know, Merck Boyer, for example, you know, you can't still, deny... Still you, get people... Like, you, you can't deny how striking the layout and the design and the artwork for that is. Some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to love it. And, but still... Some it people get, it, it still gets hate the, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, naturally. Um, but it gets the recognition that that kind of... Courage, I guess, is the right is the word I'm looking for here. You know, in that design, because you could do that, and it could be a complete failure. And because everyone yeah. says, "Oh my god, your your graphic design is shit. It's all yellow and, and pink and black. It's horrible." And get nowhere. To be honest, the only way Johan Law gets away with it is because he's really good at it, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he knows what rules he's breaking, and uh, goes in there in a way of breaking the rules where most poor most. A graphic design that uses, for example, a, a lot of typefaces, um, they're using it because they think that's what they see in media. And they don't actually realize that most of the things they read have like two or three, maybe max. Yeah. He, he knows the rules and he chooses to break them and, and he does it in a brilliant way. Yeah. Um, but we're not talking about them. They, they, if they won a graphic design and layout award, they won it years ago. Uh, we're talking about Frontier Scum and Blade Runner. I've got to say, Blade Runner. Possibly is, I would argue, some of the least adventurous in Free League Stable. Would yeah. you agree with that? I mean, it fits the theme, and there's nothing wrong with it at all. But um, uh, I mean, yeah. I, again, I wonder. Um, so I think there there are some things that are really good about it. I mean, it's obviously got quite an alien style feel to it, although it's slightly different in the way they lay it out. Um, I think maybe perhaps they're winning because it's the combination of how they're doing that, but also the combination of what is brilliant artwork. Um, and actually the, how striking the map work is. So just, mm. you just open the front cover and you've got like, you know, the map of Los Angeles and it's bright. It looks like you're looking at it from space. And yeah. it looks, it just really draws you in. It's really beautifully yeah. done. And I'm, no, it's beautifully done, yeah. So and, so of course, they also won the Best Cartography Award as well as yeah. um, Gold Award. So and talking of art, actually, um, you mentioned that Vess and Britain and Ireland had won both of the awards, but it won gold in all three of the mm. awards it was entered because it also won gold in um, 
uh, interior art, which of yeah. course is the lovely Johann Eckergans, um, and um, yeah, it's great. Yes, lovely. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So also, um, Free League also won um, the gold any award for the um, Ruins of Simbroom Beastry. Mm. Don't, not, don't want to forget that in the in the deluge of other awards. But again, you know, no, I did forget. I totally forgot that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> sorry, showing how. <laughs> but again, how, how I I don't Sim Room just doesn't leap out at me, so I'm totally missed that. Um, um, but that's great. Again, you know, the ruins of Sim Room, Sim Room, you know, the whole artwork and the, the look and feel of all of that is just superb. So another very well, um, a very well deserved uh, award. And I don't know, sis, I don't know, did um, the Monster Codex win anything when that came out? Because basically, the Beastry is effectively the Monster Codex, but for five E. But in D and D. Oh, I can't remember. And I, so I don't remember, and it obviously deserved to, and it's because it's brilliant. I remember when I was running the campaign, and I just got the Monster Codex. And I was looking for a uh, an adversary for you for the next scenario. And I just started going through it. And I got to the very first one, the Arak. And I didn't yeah. get any further because it was brilliant. And it just suited the, the story I wanted to tell perfectly. And I just, okay, hey, I'll use I'll use the first one in the book. Next time I can use the next one. And it's just brilliant. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's brilliantly laid out. It, it's really well done. It's, it's uh, you know, it, it is basically a, you know, a monster manual. But it's done in a way that is, is a bit more intelligent and a bit more involved and it gives the gm a bit more information about how these creatures how each of the creatures might operate tactically or strategically and it might just be instinct but it's just how they behave and it gives you some ideas about how to play them in the game which is great love it really good well deserved another superbly deserved gold any uh, award yeah absolutely um uh, have we covered everything that um that the freely team have won uh, I'm not sure. I, I, think, I hope so. I think so. We mentioned Cuttlecrow, Best Adventure. Um, so just the other thing I just wanted to point out, because we've talked about it before, and I, I do love this game, and that's Rivers of London. I knew that was and coming. And that <laughs> won silver for Best uh, best Rules. Um, so that's interesting. I think we talked about this last time, didn't we, when we were looking at the nominations. And I think I yeah. asked you, what what is it about the Rivers of London rules that make them so good? And I don't remember your answer. And I think I said <laughs> it's the best iteration of if 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 we take Call of Cthulhu as a kind of standard, it's not quite basic role playing. It's you know targeted towards that investigative horror thing. Yeah. Um, and it is even in seventh edition, which is a bit better than previous editions. I find it now in 7th edition, quite clunky. I played a, a short campaign of it um, last year and I was feeling it was very clunky. Yeah. And a lot of the problems I got with that rule set are solved in Rivers of London, which isn't meant to be quite, you know, such existential horror. You're not meant to be totally incapable of defeating the creatures that you're um, you're coming across. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit easier, shall we say, but, mm. but it's far more enjoyable. It's just more enjoyable. Rule yeah. Set. Cool. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think I talked about um, Cyberpunk Red again before, and I had, had another game of that this last week. And, and again, mm -hmm. it, it's... It might just, its age. A little bit, I think, yeah. Um, but also, it might just be that the, the adversaries we're going up against are, are pretty tough and have got a lot of armour. But again, in this one game, I shot one guy 
five times with an assault rifle, and I still didn't put him down because his armor was such that you know I was basically chipping his mm. armor away, and it just. I enjoyed the game. I really enjoyed the game. I'm liking my character. We've got a good fun group uh, of, of, of characters that, that, you know, working together. Um, I just thought, ugh. every time I took a shot at him and, you know, didn't roll enough damage to more than scratch his paintwork, it's just like, oh, for God's sake, this is my fifth round of just doing the same thing, trying to shoot this guy. Um, so I think it's it, it, it could do with a bit of streamlining, personally. Or, mm. make, or just make it a bit deadlier, yeah. perhaps. So that you're more like... Even, even We did get a couple of crits, and kind of the first time we played, nobody got a crit on any of their attacks. And then I thought, oh, great, we've got some crits. This will put people down. And it didn't. And they were really quite, mm. quite kind of... They weren't ineffective, but they, they didn't... At no point did they put anybody down. And there was no. I mean, again, I know this is, this is again, a symptom of, a, of, a, of an older style game or a game that's, that's based on an... You know the the older you know, old school way of doing things, but even one of the guys had his legs shot off, and he was still able to shoot. It's like, oh come on, you know. I know, I know he's cybered up. I know he's drugged up, but still, his leg has been shot enough times that it's been detached from his body. So anyway, um, but I'm enjoying. It. I am enjoying. It. I just the, the rules I find um, the certainly the, the combat mechanics I find I find just tend to drag the combat out longer and so you can spend a whole session just running one combat whereas it would be more fun to have half the session running the combat and half the session doing something role playing but that's just yeah. my that's just me um one of the big announcements that was made at Gencon is uh, a the the now I always struggle with this how do you say moria uh as well, in I, the mines of Moria. Well, I just say Moria. Yeah, I'm not. See, uh, I'm not. I, see, I'm not a Tolkienist. You know, who's got to get all the pronunciations right and more and that kind of stuff. You know, like they did play uh, in the in the movies. You don't just well, walk I into Mordor. Yeah, I, I think to say Mordor think Moria is the right way of saying it, but I I tend to say Mariah. Um, oh, it's not Mariah. No, 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 no. Yeah, I know. I, that, that's why I say I struggle with this. Okay. So I have to, I have to, I have to take a pause before I say Moria, which I right. think is the right way of saying. It. I think, I think that's um, the accepted way of saying it. Yeah. But it, you know, when I read it when I was twelve, um, and people often hear it and think I've said Mariah, um, and I haven't said it with the A, but I do, I do generally. Um, pronounce the i in there anyway moria uh, campaign which has been long awaited i yes. think um what's his name uh gar gar hanrahan, hanrahan has yeah. been writing Gareth, Gareth since hanrahan, yeah. first edition and then it was going to be part of cubicle seven's second edition and he was still writing it and now it's coming out for the published second edition by free league so um, it should be really well written when it comes, and it may be massive. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. So I I fear I worry that the expectations for this are going to be so high that whatever, however good it is, people are going to be disappointed. It's going to disappoint some people because, like you say, it's been so long anticipated and so long awaited. Um, mm. I mean, I suspect it's going to be very, very good. I just really hope that people haven't got themselves wound up into such a 
such a you know a, a tight expectation you know like cycle that uh that they you know that yeah that it, it might leave them feeling a little disappointed when they get it but well, i mean I having, having... kickstart it when it's announced when it, cool. when it goes live um so i so i love the one ring and and the books are fabulous i i, I the one thing i don't feel that you know the Tolkien's arms aren't reaching out of the pages and grabbing me by the lapels and pulling me in to run it. No, that no, said, I understand that feeling that entirely. Said, I think the Moria expansion, the Long Might Dark, just as it's you. called, could, yeah, because even just looking at the artwork on what they've released, you just go, oh, okay, my mouth is beginning to water now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, yeah. Prioritising the list of games I want to play or I want to run is a real problem, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it might it might tempt me. We'll see. Yeah, you've only got a few years left now, Dave. Remember that. Well, you know, I'm making the most of it, the time though. Actually, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, as as opposed to that that day, I don't know how many years ago it was when we used to get together maybe twice a year if we were lucky, maybe I, three times if we were I, lucky. And I and I worked it out that we had I don't know like. 35 games left or something before we died it's like, that's that's not enough that's not enough we want more than that so uh, at least we've you know at least we've got more Brilliantly, gaming. starting a podcast has really helped that hasn't it <laughs> um yeah. right let's move on where are we now uh oh yeah another announcement that was kind of coincided and i think there's now a kickstarter live for this andreas lundstrom friend of the show been on the show before yes um he runs the Sweden Rolls uh, Actual Play podcast. Him and his gang have got together and they've created a new setting for Dragonbane and it is currently on Kickstarter. It's called Windheim. Yep. Yeah, I haven't looked into that in any great detail, but uh, yeah, every, every uh, you know, all my best wishes go out to Andreas and that. I think they s- it's coming out quite quickly. So I think this has been on, on the cards. On- yeah. For a long time. So I think they've probably been working on this ever since, or possibly even before, the um, Dragonbane, Draca Octomorna reissue was, you know, was announced. Um, what I imagine it is, is it's a campaign for an older version of uh, Drag- uh, Draca Octomorna that they, you know, they've had knocking around for years. Yes. And they've written it up, yeah. prompted by the new edition coming out. And, of course, the wonderful, you know, really really flexible license that people have got for that i gotta say i got my my copy of dragon bane and i love it i love it very much me too um we talked about you know the play feeling a bit grindy uh magnus by the way has invited us to have another game with him he's got another scenario he wants to run for us so i'll try and do that i found my old character sheet for my um Oh, what was his name again? My 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 Wolfkin fellow. Is it called cool. Wolfkin? Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, I, well, he's, he's Wolfkin of some sort. I'm a duck, for Christ's sake. So. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it, it's it's great. It really makes me want to play it again. Uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not rushing into playing it. But I think there's a, there's a key thing here. It made me think, opening this box up made me think of when I cycled over to the well-in stores as it was then from my house in um, in the middle of nowhere 
to buy my first box set of D&D, the sort mm -hmm. of republished set by Games Workshop. And it, you know, it rattled enticingly and I put it on the bike rack and I cycled all the way back and then I opened it. And I've got to admit, there was this kind of sense of disappointment when I had these rather cheaply made dice and a couple of books and that was it. Yeah. You know, the books then were thin and stapled. I didn't really understand the rules. I got my mate around to help me. We couldn't work out how to play it. Total disaster. <laughs> this, this package, on the other hand, if I had been 12 and I got the, or 11 or whatever it was, 10, I, I, can, I honestly can't remember. Somebody, no, can't remember. Uh, however, if I'd been young and I got this with its little cardboard, you know, really nicely made cardboard standees. Yeah. So you've got, you, you might not have the figures, and I remember D&D being sold to me in an article in the Sunday Times, I think it was, with little photographs of, you know, the actual Citadel miniatures. And I, I think I was expecting to find, you know, a couple of those inside the box and there was nothing. Whereas here, mm -hmm. you've got figures, your, all your monsters and, your, and, and, you know, some sample adventurers and stuff like that. You've got a brilliant, you know, a, a scenario, that uh, a solo play scenario that teaches you the rules, which is so what was missing from um yeah no yeah i i'd recommend yeah. it to anybody I'd it is really it is it is lovely it's got a, like you say it's got a beautiful retro nostalgic feel to it um I, yeah. I feel exactly the same as you when i when i when i got hold of it um it's uh it's great but again it's one of those that a bit like the you know the one ring you know i'll enjoy playing it if somebody wants to run it i don't see it um supplanting forbidden lands for me so if i wanted to run a fantasy game and gm a campaign i would run forbidden lands right now yeah i think that's um, still my favorite as well but, i agree but but dragonbane draco octomorna has certainly is teasing and tempting me a little bit mm. um and it like I say it's beautifully beautifully put together um well yeah, you're so, going to be running it because we're going to be running it at um that's true comic con that's true that would be cool that'd be cool yeah are we running it at Comic-Con or Dragon Meat? I can't remember where we're running. We're definitely running no, it No, we're running it at Comic-Con because we don't have space and time to do it at Dragon Meat. No, you're I right. I don't think. We're yeah. not going to do any demos at Dragon Meat. We don't normally. No, um, no, no. But yes, so Andreas's Kickstarter, um, uh, under the, the title of the Nord, Nordic Skalds, uh, uh, Windheim and the Horn of the Dawn. There are 24 days to go as of uh, the point of recording. It's already smashed its goal. But um, if you are interested, uh, it looks pretty nice. Um, go and support them and stick in your, your pledge on their Kickstarter. It does look very nice. It's got some very nice map work. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. A um, couple of other quick um, Kickstarters to refer to. One of which was brought to our attention by one of our patrons. I think it was Craig, who do? And that was Badge Quest, which... Mm -hmm. um, appears to be the role-playing game of being a girl guide, as we say in this country, girl scout uh, to our American listeners, um, and going on adventures to get badges. Um, I think mm -hmm. Hoodoo said that it was based on Year Zero engine, and it does use D6 dice pools, but it has a variable success, so you can you know, get success on whatever the GM decides uh, uh, you know, a hard a hard task is successes on sixes. Um, so it's not quite a year zero engine. I don't think it's using the year zero license from my look at it. 
But the other okay. one, which we will be talking about later in the show, is Slaughterville, which is most definitely Year Zero license with some interesting enhancements. Okay. Yeah, so we um, we'd arranged an interview with uh, Christopher Brown, who is the creator of Slaughterville, uh, an interview that I completely um, successfully... Arranged it entirely around your availability. Failed to, to remember we were doing home. it. So I was out walking the dog at the time that the interview happened. So, um, yeah. Um, but apologies yeah, I kept to saying Chris, to Chris, hold on, I'm just going to write to Dave and just make sure you can do this time. And I'd yeah, drop you a yeah. line. And then you come back and say yes. Then I told... Chris, yeah, definitely, we can do it at yep. two o'clock in the afternoon, your time, and six o'clock for us. But no, and I you couldn't be bloody it. bothered, could you? I could be bothered. I just, I don't know why it didn't even occur to me on that day. And then I went out with the dog about quarter past five, and um, it was only when I got back and your message was there, and I was just cleaning up the kitchen. <laughs> My many messages in various and, uh, media. And again, I only saw. Are, you, I ta- are you coming? Are you joining us? Because I didn't take my phone out with me, which I no, I, no. I, oft, I usually do, but I don't always. And then I, I put up my iPad to stick on Frasier, which is my what I my go to when I'm cleaning the kitchen. Um, and there was a li- <laughs> there was a little message on Discord and a message on text. It's like, oh, what's this? And it's Matt. Where are you? <laughs> oh fuck. Yeah. Never so, mind. It was a good interview. I carried it without you. So, just about. You, you are a good interviewer, and I do apologise for being <laughs> utterly fucking useless. <sighs> it's yeah. always nicer to do it with you, Dave. Um, it's more fun. And that's to do the only compliment to... you're going to be getting. <laughs> that's fair enough. It's more than I expected, frankly, right now. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. So, uh, where are we next? Uh, we've, we've talked about that. Oh, yes. So, talking of Kickstarter again, um, if you go to the N-World mm. website, we'll put a link in the show notes, uh, Morris, the uh, the uh, head honcho of N-World, has done a little bit of a survey and accounting, uh, finding out all the information that's available to work out, which are the biggest earning tabletop RPG companies in um on Kickstarter, and um, somewhat confusingly, uh, well, it, it, it had an interesting thing. Of course, there are some companies who generally produce miniature war games of various sorts who earn massive amounts. There's loads of people there kickstarting these, you know, unique plastic figures uh, and stuff. And they, you know, so companies like um, Cool Minis or Not, and uh, uh, a British company that does uh, the Epic Quest things. And and they occasionally have done some RPG stuff. Uh, Mantic Games is another one who generally produce miniatures games, but they did the Hellboy RPG. He hasn't counted those. He's put them in the table, but kind of grayed them out as not being proper RPG publishers. And then you've got companies like um, uh, Magpie, um, who obviously had that massive success with uh, the Avatar role-playing game. And it's just fun to note that Free League op- occupies both the sixth and the ninth positions in the league table because they've got two different accounts. Should we tell them that they've got two accounts and they might want to just have I, one, maybe? Or maybe there's well, a good reason know. for having two accounts, perhaps. I'd love to know what the reason is. Boris couldn't work out what it is. And it, and one of them is Free League, another one's Free Legan. So... You might assume that their first Kickstarters were under Freel again, and then as they've become more international, 
They have concentrated on the free league one, but no, it seems almost uh, that you know that there are some relatively new ones like Twilight Two Thousand, still done on the on the free league one and sorry on the <laughs> free again one, and yeah. um, and and older games than that done on the free league one. So I have no idea. I'd, I'd maybe I'll spend a bit more time just looking at it, and maybe we'll drop Thomas a line. He's at um, uh, Games Quest, not Games Quest now. He's Gen Con. At, uh, Gen Con now, so busy. But I'd love to know the history behind that. Um, and, and maybe we can get them on, on the show to talk about it at some point mm. in the future, if it's an interesting anecdote. Um, yes, <laughs> it may not be. But yeah, it's interesting to see that um, a lot of games companies are making quite a lot of money out of Kickstarter, which brings us on to our final point, Dave. Yes. And this is something else from Morris, actually. This is another survey that Morris did, and I pointed, <clears throat> I pointed you at that survey because he was yes. asking some time ago for and I did, writers' rates. Yeah, and I did, um, you know, I, I contributed to that survey. Um, so this is an interesting sort of breakdown of freelance writers' word rates. Um, uh, they did it a couple of years ago, I think, or was it even longer than that? Five years ago, maybe. Um, but I haven't seen the results from then, particularly. But my sense is that the rates haven't massively improved. So it's it's quite it's quite telling that a large proportion, well, fifty percent, pretty much. I mean, this is fairly rough maths, but you know, bear with me. Uh, roughly fifty percent of of people or work that was um, responded on this on this uh, survey does work for less than nine cents per word or less and quite a lot of that comes down to you know even as low as one cent per word which you know as somebody who's trying to actually make a living in um uh you know in this in this industry as a freelance creator um one cent a word just ain't going to cut it you know anything below five or six is is not nowhere near enough you know um I've, I have done a little bit of work at lower than that, but it was only a few hundred words. It was for a friend. Um, it was a fun bit of work. It took me just a couple of hours to do it. Um, but I wouldn't do that for anything else. <clears throat> yeah, that was almost just like a hobby fun thing. It wasn't even really work. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's quite telling. So I think there are, there are certain explanations. I'm trying to avoid using the word excuses um, out there. You know, some companies say that they only charge so much because their customers won't pay any more for the books that they, they produce. That might be fine. You know, obviously there's a, there's a food chain here. Um, you know, the publishers have to be able to make enough money in order to pay their producers, their creators, the writers, you know, not just writers, you know, the artists, the editors, you know, the, 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 the proofreaders and all the rest of it, <clears throat> you know, the layout artists and, and all that. Um, and still make a profit for themselves, which is which is absolutely fine. But I think you know the one thing that particularly annoys me is is when a company says, "Oh well, we'll we'll pay you one cent per word, but you'll get lots of exposure." Mm. Now exposure, I mean, we all kind of yeah, I guess have it in our own mind what that means. But what does it really mean? What it really means is you're getting paid peanuts for doing your work. Um, you know, and I can understand, you know, a lot of, a lot of new writers 
getting into the into the job into the field um exposure might seem like a really good thing i get my name on a book by company x company x is a big company company y and z will then see my name on company x's books and i've got better chance of getting work down the line so what you're doing is you're gambling effectively your or you're you're paying forward your salary and your wages in the hope that somebody else further down the line will pay you a bit more um and it just doesn't feel right i mean you know using exposure as a selling point or as part of the negotiation with an artist or a or, or a writer is wrong in my opinion because it's an intangible, you know. Why not just give them money? Why not just pay them the right, a good rate, a decent rate for the work that they're doing? Um, yeah, yeah. I, it, it, I yeah. Go I'm on. going to offer an alternative view. No, not an alternative viewpoint. I I entirely agree with you, Dave. I'm just thinking, um, what could companies do better than that? To you know, if you if you like to broaden the uh, the pool of potential RPG writers. Um, so, you know, what they could do is offer something as an internship. And they may say, look, we're not going to pay you. It's going to be your first thing. You're not going to get paid at all. But we're going to offer you massive amounts of support. And effectively, we're going to be offering you proper training to do this. So we're yeah. going to take you through, you know, some of the stuff, actually, Dave, that you've been learning. Luckily, you've been learning on the job, as it were. But, you know, learning about um, layout for publications, learning about... Uh, the style guides and, and the different style guides that different companies have about how they like, you know, the actual words typed out and stuff like yeah. that, which is all good, useful stuff. And you could say, look, you know, do this, do this piece first for no money at all, but we're, we're going to help you do that. And of course, then you get your name on the book and all that other sort of stuff. There could be a very positive way of doing it that doesn't feel like we're just ripping you off. But it is about the company investing in the writer, be that um, mm. if it's not money, then it's genuine time and support. Um, whereas I fear that the companies yeah. that pay that rates are also very dismissive of the writer's work. Send so back I, a whole bunch of alterations, get them to do it again and again and again. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that, that are kind of really relevant here. I mean, <clears throat> firstly, I think your idea is, is a good one. But the problem with it is the, the the publisher then has to spot someone that they want to develop and put the time in to do that. Now, in my experience, um, the, the you know the, the companies I've been working for are not expecting to invest time in me as a writer. No, um, no. Yeah, you know, they're they're expecting me as a writer to produce, you know, produce the product, produce yeah. the story. You're going to be saving them time because you know. Um, if they had time, so, they'd write it themselves. So I think. So I think there is that. Um, one thing I had thought is you could you could potentially have, you know, you could do you could you could have like a uh, like a scaling contract. You could say, okay, well we'll 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 engage you for three pieces of work. The first piece of work is at a low rate because it's a tester, mm -hmm. you know, kind of on probation. But once that's okay, the second piece of work will be on a rate of, you know, two or three percent Something, yeah. more than that. And once that's good, you know, the, the, you know, your your then rate for us would then be, yeah, that six, is, that eight, could 10, work, 12 uh, sort of cents. a probationary rate, as it were. But but, but yeah. again, it, it relies upon there being uh, the appetite to do that in the publishing companies, 
And I, I think there's a lot of talent out there. I mean, one of the things that, that, that is, I think, becoming really apparent to me is there's a big difference between the hobbyist freelancer and the career job freelancer. Now, for me, as a jobbing freelancer, I, you know, I, I make no other money. I don't do any other work. So I need to get a, a reasonable rate of pay in order to make doing this the slightest bit viable. Yes. Whereas for it, me, with mm-hmm. another day job, I'm very much in the hobbyist thing. So generally exactly. what I do is I contact all the companies that you're talking to and I say, Look, I'll do it for half the money. And you undercut me. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> my point. <clears throat> I mean, you made a joke out of it, but that is exactly the point. So you'll get hobbyist writers who, you know, like us when we were first working on Alien, were yeah. just so excited to see their name in print, <clears throat> you know, published uh, as a published author that would have done it for free. Um so that is going to drag the the rate of of you know rate of pay down because you've got mm. this sump of people out there who are you know completely entitled. You know, I'm not saying if you're a hobbyist writer, don't do it because you're taking work away from people like me. Um, what I am saying is, as even if you're a hobbyist writer, charge appropriately for the work that you're doing, and then it, it raises the water level for everybody. Because um, when you've got the opportunity to get work of a sufficient quality at one cents per word as a publisher there's a bit of you know why kind of why wouldn't you because mm. it's all about you know it is about the it's not all about the bottom line it might be for some companies but for a lot of companies in this intro in in this industry and a lot of publishers in, in this industry it's about publishing great stuff it's less about the bottom line but the bottom line needs to make sense because otherwise if you that doesn't make sense then you can't publish because you won't have enough money to do it so there's there's a real you know, issue in there. But I think my, my, my call would be that even if you are a hobbyist writer, um, you know, try and try and hold you around a little bit and don't agree to to levels of pay that are so shit um, because it affects everybody. Now, I, I, I can understand, though, the eagerness and the drive and the, I really want to do this bit of work. It's for, oh, it's for X great company. Okay, they're only paying me one cent, but that, that doesn't matter because I've got my day job, so I don't need I don't need that money because it's not my mm. salary; it, it's pocket money. Uh, I, can, I can understand the draw and how attractive that might be, and then you go, "Great, I've got a bit of work out there, and it's up in lights." Um, yeah, I but, do yeah. think though that maybe rather than saying, "Oh, I'd get my name in print," um, and you know, I'm speaking now as somebody who not just has his name in print on the book, but also has his name in print on the gold any as well. So, you know, <laughs> I may be, I may be feeling quite relaxed about this, but yeah, there is a point where, you know, maybe those hobbyist writers who have a day job uh, should look at their, at what they're charging. And actually maybe the right and proper thing they should do is kind of charge a rate similar to what they're earning in their day job and even if that kind of prices them out of the job really you know so maybe it it would though wouldn't it though for most people well i mean it would for me um i i'm earning uh currently on my current contract 400 pound a day um i don't know how many words i'd write in a day because i've never really (laughs) set to it but what i should be doing maybe is working out how many words do i actually write in a day if i spent the day writing Dividing that 400 quid by that and then coming out with a, you know, whatever the rate that was and suggesting that to a company and probably yeah. getting turned down flat. But that's really, that's what my time is worth because other people pay me for that. And I shouldn't devalue the work, you know, the time I spend doing RPGs just because I enjoy it more. 
Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I think there is there is obviously a yeah you have to engage reality somewhere, um, and I think you know if you know if if as a, a a jobbing freelancer or an aspiring freelancer you went to a company and said, okay, I'm I'm going to want fifty cents per word because that's what my day job pays me equivalent, um, you'd you know your email would not be answered and neither would any mm. email after that be answered. So you'd you'd just be shooting yourself in the foot. Um, I'm not sure what the answer yeah, is. Yeah, but actually, um, 50 you know, pence a word isn't the rate I'd be... Yeah, if I were doing that, I'm just thinking that that's like 800 words a day, and I think I can manage more than 800 words a day. Yeah, exactly. I was just pulling a, a number out <laughs> of the air. Yeah. And, you know, on the, on the, on the survey, um, they went as far as... The, you know, the highest they got was 40 cents per word. Mm. But that was only from that was only for one or two specific situations. I don't know who it was. I don't know what they were writing, and I don't know who they were writing it for. But that is a a a massive outlier. That is nowhere. That is not. Yeah, and that that's very probably. I wouldn't be reality. surprised if that's like an hourly rate, and then somebody spent time doing that. Because again, there is this thing that you know, writing isn't just sitting down and typing words out, and it all magically appears. Writing for RPGs is about looking at mechanics and maybe writing a stat block, which doesn't actually, it's not all that many words. Exactly. If somebody yeah. got paid an hourly rate for writing a stat block and then divided the number of words in that stat block with the what they got for the rate, that may well come out at 40p or something like that. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Those higher. Yeah, there's definitely a scale are, where obviously the words per, you know, the, you know the, the cents per word doesn't make any sense. When, so has you know, Morrissey done a standard deviation on this? Mor- not Morrissey, Morris. Uh, <laughs> Why isn't Morrissey campaigning on behalf of RPG writers? Um, um, so the so basically the the, the 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 kind of the analysis they've done on it is pretty basic, I think. So you know the mean is eight point five cents per word, the mode is ten cents per word, the median I think comes out at about eight eight to nine cents per word. Mm-hmm. Um, Five to six is kind of a the, the that's where so five to six and ten are the humps in the other peaks in this, mm. um, and I think that's kind of fair enough. I, 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 you know, with new clients, I charge ten cents per word. I think that's fair. Um, mm. Some of them, you know, have bought slightly, but then agreed. Some of them have said yes, that's fine. Um. Yeah, I started at a lower rate than that with some of the companies I'm working with at the moment. Um, but then I've got an increase in that. Now I've established a bit of credibility with them, which is great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> you know, anything lower than six cents per word is is probably taking a piss. Not right. Not enough. Yeah. Um. And I think you see, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Stygian Fox recently put a thing up where they're looking for 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 new writers, and on that they were honest and open about saying that they charge they 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 pay five cents per word, mm. and that just that just was a little too little. Now, I, I, you know, their their um their their kind of justification of that is that that's all they can charge, they all they can pay because they can't charge more for their books because the the the, you know, the customers won't pay it. Um, which brings us back to the conversation we had earlier about the food chain and everyone's got to get their little bit out of this. 
Um, yeah. But still, you and... know, it, it feels, I don't know, you know if, if other publishers can, can comfortably pay more than that and others, you know, I mean, fr- Free League pay, pay well. Um, yeah, but Free League are the fans' favourite publishers. As as but, that's another award that they won in uh, in at Jenga yeah. in the Ennies. Uh so they may be riding a way a high wave at the moment. But I think you know it, I, one at least Stiggy and Fox are being honest and being really upfront with their word rate. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, yeah. and if they get no applications because they're charging too little, then you know maybe they have to put their word rate up. Maybe they've got to balance out you know income and stuff like that. Um, yeah. You know, it would be better. I think it would be better if more companies were really honest about what their word rates are, and that was public information, rather yeah. than you know being a bit sneaky. And I don't mind if they then say we charge, you know, we pay you five five cents a word. But then when they're talking to somebody as talented as I don't know you, Dave, or Andrew Gasker, or somebody like that, they may you you may negotiate a different rate, and they say, please don't tell anybody about this because. You know, we 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 will charge you a lot more because we really want you on this project. Yeah, we'll pay you a lot more. That that's yep. fine. But I think I think if more companies just said, okay, here is our basic word rate, everybody can see it, everybody knows, then that would be better. And actually, all those companies that are paying less than five cents a word should be shamed by Stiggy and Fox's admission there. Yeah, no, that that's that's a fair comment. And as you say, at least they're being open about it and upfront. Even if I think. That their rate is is just a little too low. I mean, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, because the you know the the amount of time and effort it can take to to write even a thousand words, depending on what it is, can be quite. You know, writer's block is a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Emptying emptying your head of creativity is a thing. Um, having periods where it's very difficult to get going because you know your head is empty is a thing. Um, and and actually, you know, if if I if I if I worked nine to five or eight to six every working day producing words, I would make, you know, I would do pretty well, better than I kind of expected when I started off on this little journey. Um, but I can't work like that the whole time because you've got, you know, you have to do maps for things, you have to do, you know, other other stuff. Um, and obviously, you know, I don't have enough work to work flat out from you know eight to six every day so you know the the reality is it's a very lumpy kind of environment uh you know you don't get you know you can't just work it out and say oh yeah you know you you could do a thousand words a day or three thousand words a day and at five cents per word that's x therefore all good um it's not as quite straightforward as that but as you say at least they've been open and honest about it um so I we've been the, talking for almost an hour now, Dave. Most of that about your financial problems. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe we should move on. Yeah, that's fine. Yes, yeah, so let's move on. <laughs> it's an interesting conversation because uh, I don't. I don't think there is a right answer anywhere right at the moment. Um, no, no. Because you don't. You don't want to. You don't want to. I think there are some publishers out there, and I'm not talking about the big ones. I think there are some individuals. I heard some horror stories, um, and. You know, publishers like that should just get out of the industry and go and do something else. Um, but there are, you know, the good publishers do need to do need to make some money as well. And uh, so I don't see mm. what I don't, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, okay, not we should also say that maybe as consumers, we all ought to be 
paying more for these wonderful things. You know, maybe we should buy fewer games and pay more for each game because, you know, we probably, all of us, have more games than we're likely to play. There is that, And yeah, we get yeah. such good value out of the games we do buy. Yeah. Something we maybe ought to consider, paying $100, $100 a book or something like that rather than 40 or 60 Although, does that then put... Yeah, I mean, that then puts lots of publishers out of business when people don't buy their books anymore. I, th I think there's a thing where, where we could all pay a few dollars more, potentially. I, I know there's a you know cost of living crisis and money is tight for, for everybody, but I think for, for hobbyists, most of the people I talk to and most of the people I meet and deal with um, would probably be okay in spending a few dollars more if it meant that trickling down you know, your your writers and your artists and, and all the others who go into creating that lovely book that you get at home and put on the table, um, if they all got a little bit more money that made it more sustainable for them. I don't, you know, I don't think people will be upset with that, but I'm not a publisher yet, so who knows, you know, I mean, mm. am I, when, you know, when, when we're trying to do Tales of the West, when you're confronted I'm with I'm the Excel spreadsheet. Differently. Yeah, exactly. Fuck that. Fuck that bloke's earning in. Paying them three cents a word. Penny a lucky. word. <laughs> and it's shit. Yeah. So, um, right. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Okay. So, um, I, I just want to point out that there's 512 words in my uh, short article. So, I'll expect <laughs> what? Um, 51 quid I'll, I'll, I'll I won't do the other 20p how about that from the from the all right, massive well, I'll charge uh, you for all the ones I've written then mate okay <laughs> well <laughs> that's fine I'm thinking fine what, what I'm saying I'm not I'm not thinking of charging you Dave you, you didn't well you did ask me to write you this but you know we, we do have a podcast a podcast can pay us if only if only <laughs> we might need to put our, 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 our patron costs up you don't mind <laughs> well, that do you yeah. guys if we, if we increase the patron costs by a thousand percent, you'll still be all right with that, wouldn't you? Good. I um, love our patrons. I really do. These <laughs> uh, 512 words are free. Uh, you may still argue <laughs> they're not great value, but um, you <laughs> even asked me. Even free. <laughs> two weeks ago, you asked me to um, do some homework while I was on holiday in Cornwall. And so I did. Last time, I promised I would write something while on holiday in Cornwall. I'm not sure you want to hear about my carefully considered mechanics for rainfall, but one walk between rainstorms did make me think about something to do with one of the Versen adventures in Seasons of Mystery. We were taking a short walk that started following the towpath of a canal. The Bude Canal is the most westerly canal in the United Kingdom. Opened in 1823, it was built to take nutrient-rich sand from the coast inland to treat nearby farmland. It was only 35 miles long, and it made me think of another canal in Devon. The Tavistock Canal is only a few miles long and runs between the town of Tavistock a centre of copper mining in the early 19th century, and Morwellum Quay, an inland port, from where the copper could be exported. Nowadays, this canal stores water for hydroelectric power and is a pleasant walking route in the Dartmoor National Park. But 
It's near Dartmoor, not on the moor itself. Tavistock is a town just outside the western edge of the moor. And this got me thinking about the now gold any award-winning Seasons of Mystery Adventures for Verson. This book features four new mysteries set in different parts of Scandinavia. As it was going to be kick-started and released alongside the Mythic Britain and Ireland setting book, also any award-winning, both best setting and product of the year, Dave and I were asked to help Thomas, Nils and the team come up with alternative locations for each of the adventures. The one I'm prouded of is the Irish location for A Dance with Death. I am least proud of the one we collectively chose for The Devil on the Moor, Dartmoor. Oh yes, it has the landscape and the atmosphere. It even has an actual cryptid, the Beast of Dartmoor, as well as being the inspiration and setting for the most famous Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. But it doesn't have any canals, and canals are a big part of the story in The Devil on the Moor. Thornmoor, near Doncaster, is the largest lowland peat bog in the United Kingdom, a setting that is, I'm sure, a lot more similar to Grimstead Ling in Jutland, where the original mystery is set. In that version of the mystery, the Danish Society for Moorland Reclamation are working to drain the bogs and improve the land, building canals as they go. On Thornmoor, a very similar project existed. The Thornmoor Improvement Company was set up in 1848. Delving into the history of the project, you can also come up with some great alternative names for the Danish characters in the mystery. William Carson was a founding director and then chairman of the Improvement Company. A fascinating character, a Quaker who on the basis of very little education at a vicarage school became apprenticed to local grocers and turned out to have an excellent head for business. And there was Sir Cornelius Vermuyden, who brought Dutch engineering expertise to the project and who might be a better alternative for Preben Ramusen in the mystery. Overall, I think it's a much better location than the one we presented in the book. Did I say award-winning? So, I promised you Cornish thoughts on Versen, and that's what you got. It's not my fault that my thoughts in Cornwall were about a place in Yorkshire. Yeah, so um, interesting, interesting reflection on um, some of the stuff that we did for uh, Mythic Britain and Ireland. Um, I do. I, I do well, dis- no, this is a seasons of mystery. Oh, seasons of mystery. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do disagree with you on one thing. You said at the end that it's not your fault that your thoughts in Cornwall went to Yorkshire. I think it is your fault, actually. It's nobody <laughs> else's fault, is it? Um, no, so no. It is entirely your fault on that one. Um, but yeah, I remember doing all that and. <clears throat> It was it was very interesting to, to 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 put together the ideas of where we would locate these, and um, but ultimately the the decision was for the editor to make, 
and not not for mm-hmm. us. But um, I'm glad you've got that off. Your and chest, you know, there, there's finally. lots of good reasons for setting it in Dartmoor because you know that is people will immediately think of um, the you know Hound of the Baskervilles and the idea of cryptids. I'm sure there's a Dartmoor puma or something even now. And the only yeah. the only the only beast I could actually find in modern folklore was was Bodmin Moors. No, no, is there a doggy? I can't remember. There is there is I a beast of Bob, there is a beast of Bodmin. Yeah, um, yeah. But but I, where... I, I guess also for for a book like this that is not just aiming at a uh, you know a, a target readership who live on Dartmoor. Dartmoor is a name that everyone's or most people will have heard of. So I can understand yeah. them putting that in the. It's a hook. Okay, it isn't actually quite geographically correct because it doesn't quite work, but what the hell? It's Dartmoor. Everyone's heard of Dartmoor. Yeah. So, now I spent I a lot of time writing this article looking at maps of Denmark to find this um this ling. Yeah. Uh, as they call it. And I can't find it anywhere. Okay. <laughs> I can find Fair landscapes enough. like it, but nothing with that name. So um so maybe it's a made up more anyway. Um, yeah, but anyway, thank you for doing that, and thank you for using your short time in the sunshine on holiday thinking about it. Right, shall we get so, on to the main contact of the uh, of the episode? Let's, given let's, that we are um, over an hour in, yeah, let's get on to the interview and um, yeah, hear all about Slaughterville. So, uh, in the Hammam with me today, I have got Chris Brown. Chris Brown, am I right? It is Chris Brown. Yes. Yes. yes, I had a sudden moment there where I thought, actually, is that the surname? I mean, I'm pretty confident it was, but <laughs> I did mean to check it before we started this recording. Now, Chris, you are uh, the CEO, the marketing officer, and the general dog's body of Laughing Road Games. Uh, and you've currently got a year zero game on Kickstarter that we're going to talk about in a bit. But right now... We're going to start off with our favourite question that all our new guests get. Please, Chris, tell us about your life in gaming. Okay. And I will try to keep this as as short as we can. But uh, it honestly started back in the 80s with a few friends of mine. We went down and we played Final Fantasy 1 on the on the original Nintendo. Mm-hmm. From there, we went to the hex paper for D&D, right? Mm-hmm. And, and fast forward to the end of high school and we lose track of everybody. Um, it comes back about 10, 15 years ago. I started getting back into gaming. I bought Betrayal. I bought, um, oh, Arkham Horror and similar games. And and it really, uh, the narrative aspect of those always intrigued me. And, and they, they were my initial entry into gaming. And as somebody who likes to tell stories, I've had a novel published prior to this, uh, prior to getting into gaming. And as somebody who likes to tell stories, gaming interested in me because it allowed me to tell or allowed me to give the players a chance to tell a story. Yeah, yeah. And from there, I went into uh, horror was always my favorite genre. My first movie was uh, Friday the 13th when I was five <laughs> years old. I mean, oh. it's yeah, it's, it's, it's always been there. Starred and, you permanently, that one has, hasn't it? <laughs> In the best way. Yeah. But it, I, that's when I created the game Slaughterville. And Slaughterville is a horror game where you can play. See, I liked Betrayal. I liked Arkham. But they were limited in that you're only facing against one particular thing. 
What Slaughterville does is it lets you build the town of Slaughterville, and then you can play against one of our, I think we have 21 different villains now that change mm. the way the game played. So like the zombie horde is going to be much different than uh, Dracula or Elizabeth Bathory or um, the cannibal rednecks. And, and, and I've created, I actually won a few awards for Slaughterville, which is pretty nice. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I created Gods of Metal. So if you like heavy metal music, uh, this is a, a deck building game. And then we went into Gone Hunting. I actually made another one called District Z, The Cult, which is a choose-your-own-adventure game. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love choose-your-own-adventure stuff. You know, from the old, the old books. Mm-hmm. And finally, we get to where we are today, where I started creating graphic novels based right. on Slaughterville. And then I thought to myself, well, what if... What if I give them a way that they can play this game, not just restricted by the cards and the dice and everything else, but with their own uh, story? Mm. Well, I started off playing Alien. I mean, I've I've had tons of RPGs up here, right? Modiphius is a good company. I'll I'll stick with them uh, and I'll I'll, I'll say nice things about them because they were nice to me. Uh, But Alien really brought out that stress die to bring the fear into it. And, and in Slaughterville, they use... Okay, I'm sure we'll get into all of it. But anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead of where we're supposed to be. But yeah, it, it was it was through playing things like Alien and then Blade Runner. Uh, I have Walking Dead um, purchased. It's just, obviously, it's not out yet. But hmm. Yeah, and that, that's where my gaming journey has been up until today. Okay, uh, so... Um... So Alien we talk about as being a big inspiration for some of the mechanics behind your game. But oh right now, you're kickstarting a role-playing game version of Slaughterville, as opposed to yes. previously it was a board game. And that role-playing game, the reason you're on this particular podcast is that role-playing game is, of course, on the Year Zero engine. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, cool. it... it uh it it takes what i felt were the best parts of it that that um that felt most like the board game mm-hmm. uh the step dice from uh, blade runner i keep looking up because that's where i have them stored yeah <laughs> so i like i like the blade runner uh, step die mechanic where uh, dcba is your strength of the die and so mm-hmm. it allows for character progression and improvement uh, but then I really loved the idea because in the board game, panic and, and nerve and uh, that tension is a big thing. So bringing the aliens stress dice into the Blade Runner's uh, step die mechanic really brought, really made it feel like the Slaughterville board game. And, and right. it, it was it's just amazing how it melded together for me. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, um, uh, I've got a plethora of questions to ask. I'm just trying to think about what order they go in. So sure. um, I explained when we introduced you, and uh, you, you've you've mentioned already that uh, Laughing Rogue is kind of a one-man band. You do a lot of stuff yourself. Are you doing all your own artwork on your graphic novels and things like that as well? Or, or... That's a good question. I, I do um, source it out for the artwork because I couldn't draw to save my life. Right. I was thinking you're going to be too much of an Aesons man if you're doing everything. <laughs> right. 
And so the artwork for, well, the initial board game and I guess the role-playing game, um, that's going to be outsourced as well, that you you have people doing that for you. Yes. Excellent. That, that's taken, yeah. And if you were to, so I've got a little bit of a flavour of Slaughterville um, from what you've just said and also from the Kickstarter, which, of course, we will link to in the show notes so people can go and uh, read about it and hopefully maybe, you know, uh, back it themselves that's that's kind of the reason why you're here um but it it felt a little bit i don't want to i don't want to say this wrong and and say i've got the wrong impression of it but i'm going to put it out there it felt a little bit like the sort of the universal studios um horror stable all coming together uh and almost like slaughterville was a movie lot and uh, in the game at least in the board game at least you you know you set up your, your your studio lot and then draw a card or whatever and you that's the monster that you're going to be fighting and 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 that's the way it goes is 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 that fair first of all is that the is that a fair question a fair way of representing it that's pretty much exactly what i was going for with it yeah Cool. Yeah. Right. So Waterfill is the stage and you're you're playing. And all 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 the classic monsters from the past. Any any that you've invented yourself in Laughing Rogue? Um there's there's some. We have like obviously we have the zombies. We have the werewolf we called the beast within. Mm -hmm. Uh we have Dracula in there. We don't have we have the mummy coming. Um we don't have a merman creature from the Black Lagoon yet. Uh, but we took, think of them all like homages, I guess yeah. would be the best way to say. Now we have the, the, the dream demon, which is our thank you to Freddy Krueger. Okay. We have uh, the demon razor, which is traps you in hell and you're supposed to get like hell razor, yeah. right? But with the, with That's the, with the uh, numbers filed off, eh? The serial Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that, those the cannibal rednecks. I mean, people have been doing cannibal rednecks for years, but we have our own style on it. Cool. Uh, yeah. the, now the carnival. The carnival is new, uh, in that you're a lost soul that's trapped inside of this carnival. Where uh, if you can't get out, you then become a carny worker. So mm -hmm. it's your job to find out why you're there. What do you have to overcome in order to get out? Right. What's holding you? And that's all in the board game. Do all those monsters, are they all transferring to the role-playing game as well? Or are you expecting uh, the role-playing game GMs to, to introduce other stuff and other creatures? Now, we did take every villain that we had in the first game, and we transferred that into the RPG mechanics. So you will have every villain from the original Slaughterville 1 board game, which we have up to three now, uh, and they will all be available for you in the core rulebook. You will also be able to... You have rules in there to also be able to create your own uh, villains as well. Mm -hmm. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's better. And so, yeah, yeah, sounded lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so this Kickstarter is happening, uh, and I must admit, I, so long since I looked at it, I now can't remember quite what I um, noted about it. But in terms of uh, your rewards, uh. You've got a graphic novel. Is that already yep. made? 
Yeah, I have one and two already made. Three is being drawn as we speak. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, and you got a PDF version of uh, the RPG. Because I love my Euro backers. Excellent. <laughs> and uh, but you you are doing a hardback. You're doing uh, is that an offset hardback or is that a print on demand hardback? Uh, no, I will get them sent directly to me, and then I will ship them out as brilliant. Yeah, just regular manufacturing. Lovely offset printing. I love it. I love it yeah. all the time. Uh, cool. And you know, this is uh, obviously when when we look at this in in other parts of the world apart from the US, we then think, oh, right, I've got to add um, shipping onto that. But that uh, that cool rules that cool rules pledge level at, at just thirty five dollars is strikingly good value for the rpg market today i appreciate that uh, i really do cool um and uh ha is the, the project's about halfway um halfway complete are you happy with progress or would you well obviously you'd have preferred if it had like reached its uh reached its goal in the first day and and then you were just piling more stuff on but um I, I I guess you're you've got some experience with Kickstarters. How are you feeling? This is progressing compared to our previous projects. Yeah, I've I've been doing projects for over ten years, and and uh, some of them I've had fun day one. Some of them have taken up until the last minute. Like I feel this one might. Now again, I fully admit that my issue comes in. I don't get myself out there enough to talk to people, which is why I like doing things like this. Um. But yeah, my, I had to come to you, remember? <laughs> exactly. It's my Achilles heel. It's my Achilles heel. I, I fully admit it. Uh, I have to do better in that. Otherwise, I think if I did get out there more, it would already have been funded. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so hopefully you're going to get a flood of people from our massive audience, whatever our massive audience is on the podcast. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, so we talked a bit about you using the step die system from... Blade Runner and from Twilight 2000, but yes. with the stress dice from Alien. Mm -hmm. Anything else? Any any new? Any other innovations to the uh, Zero system that you're trying? Yes, yes, I did. Um, I added a, uh, a few things. One, in my board game Slaughterville, you are capable of getting an animal companion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the other ones that I have here, I didn't I didn't see any of that. So I added a way for you to actually find and tame animals. So if you see a uh, a dog, a wolf, a giant spider, if you will, mm -hmm. there are there's rules in there that will not only allow you to tame it, but also to train it. So you can train a giant spider to play dead, fetch, um, whatever you need it to do. And because I, I wanted it to feel so much like the game that it needed this. Yeah, that, that, that's good. We're, we're doing something similar, Dave and I. We've got a, a an Old West game where um, we're slowly creating. Slowly creating, it has to be said. It takes a while. <laughs> and, um, and uh, yeah, we've been looking at rules for breaking horses and then training them and them having quite an individual personality, almost like a character in their own right. Uh, so I'm fully appreciative of the companion animal. Uh, we've also got companion animal talents in, in our system. Uh, anything else from in your system that's an innovation? Absolutely. I uh, 
I like the idea because in our game we have the items, the gear, the things mm-hmm. you can carry along and work with. But I didn't want to track every last little bit of uh, money that you had. So what we did is we gave every item and thing an experience value. So you can use some of your experience to purchase better things that are available at the store. Right. Uh, in, much in the same way you can use it to increase your step dice, add more uh, specialties. You can also buy a better weapon, buy more ammunition, which we use the same kind of ammunition where you don't lose ammo unless uh, you roll a, a bane on the on the uh, main uh, dice. Yeah. Otherwise, you can just keep shooting all day. Yeah, that feels right for the genre. Um, exactly. In our Western game, we're counting bullets, but uh, but I think in in most most fictions and most most stories, bullets don't really count, do they? Uh, yeah. When they, when, shoot, when they shoot thirteen out. out of the shooter. Yeah. 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 Um. So. Uh, we've got that, and that was going to ask me another question. So experience. Oh yeah. Some people say that it's hard to earn experience in Year Zero games, that Year Zero games aren't very generous at experience points and, of course, the advancement that comes with those. So um, have you looked at the way Year Zero does experience and modified it in any way for your games? Yeah, we encourage actually giving more experience for, like, the investigative side. Instead mm-hmm. of just, you know, like in, in the other RPGs, you get XP for killing monsters. Um, we encourage the role-playing aspect of it, be the character. Uh, that's why I really liked their um, mental and physical uh, criticals table, because mm. they encourage the role-play. And so this way, if you do find one of the major clues that are hidden in the, in the location, you can uh, give a certain amount of experience for it. Ah, nice. Yeah. You're a horror game, right? So what's the survivability like for your character? Is there any point in earning experience points or are you going to be dead by the end of the adventure? <laughs> no, you can survive. There are there are ways to do so, of course. But um, if you act, I don't want to say act idiotically, but I mean, it's... If you horror act like movies, they're acting idiotically movie. all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you act typically, I should I should say that. <laughs> yeah, you will you will probably die. In fact, the introduction adventure in the core rulebook is you're a camp counselor at Camp Slaughterville, and the slasher comes out of the lake, and you know it's up to you to either survive or, or escape as best as you can. Brilliant. We love summer camp stories yeah. in this neck of the woods. Uh, so. Uh... <laughs> It's because summer camp is only an American thing, or at least it's not particularly a British thing. So all those stories are very exotic to us. I'm convinced that nice. there are serial killers in every summer camp. That's that's just I'm pretty sure what the media has told us. Or or comedy <laughs> shenanigans, either serial killers or comedy shenanigans, or both, of course. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so yeah, it's a vi- it's a survivable game. What do you think a campaign looks like in Slaughterville? That's a good question. Um, I would say if if I were to make the ultimate campaign book, which I'd love to do, right? Mm-hmm. It would take you from your first moments of walking into the town through finding that these supernatural things exist all the way until you... Uh, 
discover the one who's behind it and either help or stop them. Right. So um, as soon as you're describing that, I'm suddenly thinking of the Netflix series of Wednesday Adams, where uh, yes. she is a newcomer in a town and weird things are happening and uh, she <laughs> becomes Wednesday Adams' girl detective, effectively, at least in the first season, to work out what's going yeah. on behind that. So something a bit like that. Do you think that's that's the way a campaign runs? And to me, that sounds like quite a short campaign. It's not going to be a really long West Marches thing where you're still playing the characters in 15 years of game time later. Well, what's nice is you could have that. That could actually, because we have a, in, in Slaughterville too, we added a school, a ski lodge, and we have the house on Haunted Hill. We have all kinds oh, of right. things. So that yeah. could actually be one aspect of it. And then once that ended, like like it ended for her, um, you could follow the mystery further. Uh, for instance, it, Slaughterville is a town of questionable geography. For instance, you could have a movie theater one day, and then all of a sudden the next day it's a pizza parlor or it's a museum. Now, to mm -hmm. the people that live in the town, they're under whatever the influence, I don't want to say, but whatever the influence of the town is, and to them that's normal. It's always this museum was always... It was always a pizza parlor. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And that's why Drac Dracula's castle can show up in the mountains. That castle was always there. What are you talking about? Right. And so this way you're able to have that more expansive and adaptive story uh, because the town is adaptive and, and mm. expansive. Also, cell stuff doesn't work. GPS doesn't <laughs> exist. You're in modern right. times, but those things don't work. Okay, so then I've got to ask the question that every experienced Cthulhu player asks, why the hell are we in this town? Why don't we just get the first train, bus, car, or walk out of the damn town? <laughs> well, that's the kicker, isn't it? You had to have your reason to go there. And, and for the most part, anybody that enters the town, if they're not one of the special, the, the people that are awake, um, they feel like they've always lived there. That's just where their home is. But for you or the players, uh, your reason can either be like in, in the one story that I have written, you're going, you, you initially go there just to help your aunt with her bed and breakfast. You have no idea anything bad's going on. You just go to help your aunt. And now you're trapped in what's happening. And it's actually a body snatchers thing where people are being abducted and carried off. And, uh, but So yeah. And now do you want to stay after and, find out what's wrong with the town that's up to you or you could or then you could also bring in another character oh, but brilliant. usually that's brilliant. how it starts is you, you come in um i'm kind of looking forward to this uh i'm <laughs> sure if dave were here would have would have persuaded him to pledge but sadly he isn't so uh he'll have to listen <laughs> to this interview when we edit it all together um I think that's probably all the questions that I've got to ask, but uh, is there anything else that you really wanted to say about the game before we bring the interview to a close? Again, honestly, my favorite thing about it is, is, is how uh, variable it can be, how, how malleable, how the, the fact that you can bring in any villain you want, make the town, you're not stuck with a map. You can make the town be anything you want. Uh, plus that stress mechanic, um, 
really just made it feel almost absolute. It, it, it just gelled and made it perfect for me. I couldn't have asked for anything more. Free, uh, Free League has been phenomenal. I've yeah. talked to them, and they, they are the nicest people. They are. It's <laughs> true. Um, and so you're not going to Gen Con. We we discussed this, listeners, before. Um, yeah, we were. But there are, there are loads of other uh, conventions going. Are you, are you going out to any of the other conventions or anything local to you, wherever you live? What what state are you in? I'm actually in Pennsylvania. All oh, right, yeah. So are there local conventions in Pennsylvania? There are quite a few. We actually just had the World Board Gaming Championships. Oh. They're, they're near State College, PA. Uh, I go to a few. One I especially go to is Save Against Fear, which uses role playing as a as a way of uh, assisting those with uh, mental health issues, trauma. Mm-hmm. And and, and the, the, yeah, Jack and them are really good people for doing that kind of stuff. They've been doing it for years, and I always try to help them and, and visit as much as I can. Smashing! And I'm just looking at this uh, as time of recording. You've got 16 days to run on the Kickstarter. Um, by the time yep. we get this out, it will hopefully still be over 10 days. So it's almost a couple of weeks, uh, ladies and gentlemen of the listening public, for you to check out uh, Slaughterville. We will, of course, put this uh, in the show notes, um, put links to Slaughterville in the show notes and to your Facebook page, Chris. And uh, to your podcast, maybe we should just finish. What's your, what's your, well, it's not a podcast, it's a YouTube channel. What's your YouTube channel about? Sure. Uh, we do, I say we, but it's yours truly. I, I do board game reviews, and, and of course I show off the games that I'm making. That's initially how it started with showing off the games that I'm making. But then it's like, well, I'm going to say what I like about the other games too. And, and sometimes I'll do a but better series where I take a game that wasn't so good but then I'll make it using the components they have. I'll make it better. Ah, that's an intriguing prospect. I better look into that as well. It's it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Chris. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I mean, uh, it, it's always fun to meet new people like this that are into it, um, and and I just I just can't say how much I appreciate it. So it's a real pity that um, I wasn't able to make the interview. It sounds like. Um... A really interesting project. I haven't played Slaughterville, the board game, um, but you know the I, I I do like the idea of a game where you are playing, you know those those kids who always do the stupid thing or the wrong thing um, at the wrong moment. It sounds yeah, it sounds quite intriguing. Yeah, um, I, I was actually kind of there's this thing, isn't there? I think about American Kickstarters where very often. I mean, I I wasn't even aware of the board game before the role-playing game turned up, but I kind of ignore board games coming out of America anyway because I don't want to pay the massive shipping fees and import charges on board games. Yeah. RPG books, sometimes I might back those from America, but even those I don't back because sometimes they still get blimmin' tax and the shipping fees are enormous anyway. I normally only go PDF. And I think I, think I will actually just back this, but... Only PDF, I think, because I can't afford. Did you um, did you have a look down the Kickstarter because the shipping estimate is might put you off. So the UK yes. ship, shipping estimate is forty to sixty dollars. Yeah, you see exactly that. So I'll only so, get it as a PDF. I won't get it. Yeah, as a, 
yeah. in any form of hardback. And that's Ooh, what puts yeah. me off the board game. So we've never played the board game. The board game, as you described it, actually was really intriguing me. And I thought, oh, you know, I might like to play that. But, but you know, we can't afford to import that from America. I spent... Yeah. Uh, recently, I spent twice as much as I spent on a game importing it from America. And that's spectacular. And I really yeah. wanted to play the game. They had an amazing offer, like... Uh, for the game itself that was like $30 or something like that, which is a bargain, but I had to pay $60 in income, in, in import fees. Yeah. And luckily, luckily, it didn't get taxed, which it should have done as a boxed game. Okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, so I have to really, 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 really want the game to pay those sort of import fees. Yeah. Sorry, like, um, Chris. What? One of our one of our um our, our patrons, Mohammed, was telling us on the Discord about was it was it Dragonbane that he got? And yeah, the, yeah. And then the 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 Egyptian customs officials decided it was a luxury item and charged him more than the value of the game just to allow it into the country. Oh, yes, absolutely. It's... And he um he bought some paint once, and he was explaining that um that. Uh, when it was imported, they wanted to charge him for testing each of the paints uh, <laughs> to make sure it wasn't okay. contaminated or something. Make sure it so, wasn't explosives or something. Uh, and he said, he said originally, um, you know, and it was going to cost a thousand bucks a test. I thought, whoa! Now he said, actually, that's a thousand Egyptian dollars or pounds. So right. that's not, it's not actually, you know, it's about 20, it's, 30 quid or something. But yeah. still, 30 quid a test for a bottle of paint that probably cost you maximum four quid, five quid, something like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, he just he just told the supplier that he didn't want them and they got sent back. Um, it's, but, yeah. it, is, it is rubbish, isn't it? I don't know why. And I, and I, I know there were a lot of things that contribute to it, but it does seem to have gone bonkers and particularly in Mohammed's example it does sound like they're just trying to make money they're trying to rip money off them yeah but, i mean know, Mohammed's it's... relatively lucky because there are some countries that you know uh, game suppliers won't even attempt to post to i think brazil yeah uh, very for whatever reason and i don't know the reasons by it but lots of kickstarters will say we're not mailing to brazil or ukraine at the moment and yeah. okay ukraine you can get because it's in the middle of a war, so I don't know what that's all about. But Brazil, you're going, well, you know, that's a reasonably developed country with so yeah. anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, on the Slaughterville Kickstarter, Chris says that, you know, they can't they're not allowed to ship to Belarus, Brazil, Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Afghanistan. So mm. anybody anybody in any of those countries who wants to get the game, I'm afraid it's tough shit. And and you see most of those you can you can kind of see why, but I can't with Brazil. I don't know what goes on in Brazil. No, it's it's odd, isn't it? it? Maybe maybe <clears throat> there's a an import duty. You know, the the Brazilian government wants to encourage homegrown role playing games, and therefore maybe. charges punitive rates on 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 foreign RPGs because there is quite a thriving RPG industry in Brazil. Partly because I guess I can't buy any of the <laughs> any of the ones that are produced in the rest of the world. Yeah. But, um, don't know. I don't know. Anyway. But anyway, so um, it's still on... Slaughterville RPG is still on Kickstarter at the moment. There are 14 days to go as of uh, recording. Hasn't quite made their pledge target yet. So if you're interested, get out there and, and back it and help Chris get Slaughterville RPG over the line. And Chris is reasonably confident that it'll make the target. So, um, yeah. We'll... Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's good. 
We'll see. Okay, is Excellent. that the end of this week's episode? I think that is. That's a bit of a bumper one again, isn't it? We do like to talk, mm. don't we? Well, you do about your job. There's a whole gap here, and I'm looking at the waveform. Where I was just sitting back listening to you. Well, it makes a change, um, actually. It's usually the other way around. Interspersed <laughs> with the odd guffaw, of course. Oh, that was a good guffaw. Well done, mate. Nice. You're learning. Cool. And there is a little guffaw or something in this one. I can see a little line in that big gap. Oh, what? I will just say that if you want to hear Pearls of Wisdom from, or not hear, read Pearls of Wisdom from my mouth, and you're on Blue Sky. I'm doing RPG a day on Blue Sky. So, yeah, what um, is what is Blue Sky? It's the new Twitter for people that hate oh, Twitter. Okay, right. Yeah, it, it's invite only at the moment, and I get one. Now that I've been invited, I get one invite a week. I think every Sunday. I've given the first one just today to Craig Hoodoo. Um, okay, cool, cool. Who I I feel deserves deserves one, and I know he wants to be on Blue Sky. So. Um, Cool. I sent him the first. I, I didn't offer it to you because I know you don't use Twitter. So I don't use Twitter at all, no. No. I'm... Yeah. Yep. Um, Maybe I'm I hoping. should. It, it, it feels there seem to be quite a lot of TGRPG people there. Okay, so cool. I feel it may turn out to be a social network that actually survives. It might be worth going to it at some point yeah. in the future. At yeah. some point. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, but we'll definitely do something for next time. Not sure what, but we'll let you know. Um, yeah, and until then, it's goodbye from it's me. It's goodbye from me. Uh, goodbye from and you. It's, goodbye well, from it's also goodbye from him. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's it's a plethora of goodbyes. May the icons bless your adventure. You have been listening to the Effect podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea used with permission of Free League Publishing.